You know, it's clarifying to go back to the creation and to see what God originally intended for us as human beings. We see how God has blessed us and has set before us a pattern of life. So we've spent a lot of time talking about that. And we've talked about how the fall has entered into the picture and muddied the waters. We actually see the very same thing happening when we talk about the role of women in church and society. That's not always obvious to us because we read right past the fall and get into the rest of the Bible and don't see God's redemptive purpose at work. So when you read Genesis chapter 1, what's it say about men and women? They are both created in the image of God, and they are both called to rule in this world, and they are blessed, blessed so that they might be fruitful and multiply. You go to Genesis chapter 2, what do you find? God creates Eve as a suitable helper for Adam. The meaning of the Hebrew is that she is his complement. She is different from Adam, but not inferior to him. They are partners, and together they rule. They fulfill God's purpose. So that's God's plan. There's a mutuality. There's an equality at before God, both made in the image of God, but there is some difference, and it's that difference that is so delightful. And that's why men and women find one another, and they form families together. This is all God's, God's good plan. But not everything went according to plan. There was sin. When sin entered the world, everything goes wrong. We see that in the relation of human beings with God. You have Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden when he comes strolling through. They're hiding from him because they have this sense of guilt. They're also hiding from one another, as we see, and even blaming one another for what happened, you know, passing the buck, not facing that. We see alienation between man and the ground, the ground that was supposed to bear fruit as he cared for it, now it says will bear thorns and thistles. And we also see it in the relationship between the woman and the man. So in Genesis chapter 3, post-fall, as part of not God's curse, I want to make that clear, God curses the serpent. God does not curse the woman or the man. But as part of the consequence of sin, here's what it says. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, that's interesting. The first couple are blessed by God in chapter 1 and then told to be fruitful. And part of Eve's glory is that she gives birth to children. She is actually named Eve by Adam because she becomes the mother of all living. And yet that great blessing from God now is accompanied by pain. And isn't that what we experience in life? That 
Even God's blessings are accompanied with pain and difficulty. That's life in a fallen world. But notice also that it says, the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over you. Now, it's not clear what it means when it says her desire will be for her husband. You've got the assertive interpretation, which is that her desire was to assert her own will against Adam, perhaps even to rule him, but Adam, in fact, will rule her. And then you have the more vulnerable interpretation that she continues to want to unite with her husband and and to continue on their close relationship, their, their bond that they had. Desire there would have the idea of longing, but the husband brushes that off now. The man will rule over her. Old Testament scholars, they, they debate that meaning and they make good arguments for both ways of reading it. Doesn't really matter. The key point here is that whatever Eve might intend, It says the man will now rule over the woman. Genesis 1, they are to rule together. They are both creating the image of God. They are to rule together. After the fall, after the fall, their relationship is disrupted, and now the man's going to rule the woman. Just the very next chapter, you have a violent man named Lamech who is the first on record to take two wives, and polygamy is born. And as you read through the Bible, you will see many instances of the subordination of women to men. You don't have to read far before you come across it. You see it again and again. There are some laws that are given in the Bible to mitigate the worst effects of this, but it's clear things are not as God intended them to be. He intended equality and mutuality, and what we get is patriarchy. And that's that's a symptom of the fall. Now, Jesus comes on the scene, and he comes bearing a message of the kingdom of God. And you can read through the Gospels and you see that his way of relating to women was countercultural. There are many instances. I'm not going to pause to go into to even a few of them. I'll just mention one, Martha and Mary. Martha's trying to get everything taken care of for all the guests in their home. She is fulfilling the typical female role in her culture. Mary, on the other hand, is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. That's what the male disciples would do. And Martha doesn't want like it. She wants Mary back in the kitchen. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the best thing. It will not be taken from her. Mary is in a countercultural position when she sits at the feet of Jesus. So we see in Jesus a different approach to women and their role in in society and certainly within the community of faith than you see earlier in the Old Testament or in the world at large. But I want to go and focus on a key verse in Galatians from the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. Listen to these words. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a stunning statement from the former Pharisee. And it comes out of his faith in Jesus Christ. What he says is that the distinctions that are so important in the world cease to matter within the church. When we are united with Christ, we're united with one another. And now, yes, you still have Jews and Gentiles. That is, they don't just disappear, but in the church it ceases to matter. Yes, you have slave and free, but in the church it ceases to matter. Yes, you have male and female, but in the church it ceases to matter. We are one in Christ Jesus. Now, some people read this verse as saying, well, Paul Paul didn't have any concept of actual changing our relationships on the ground. This is just before God, that, that everyone is righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone's justified. But the problem is, it would make no sense if that was his point. No one doubted that both slave and free could be justified or that male and female, men and women, could be justified. Nobody had any doubts about that. And in fact, Paul's not even talking about that. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles through the whole letter of Galatians. But then he inserts this. Why? Because he's trying to emphasize that when you trust in the grace of God and you enter into relationship with God through faith, you receive the Holy Spirit, you become part of a new creation. You're part of a new community. And in this community, all the hierarchies and all the, all the imposition of artificial roles, those things fall away and we become one in Christ. That's the principle. Now, I'm just touching the very surface of it. I think I could show you with a lot more scripture how this basic theme works itself out, that Christ comes to redeem us from the effects of the fall not to reinforce those and not to impose those. This is a fundamental idea and concept in the Bible and in the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. It's not as if, as I mentioned a moment ago, that all distinctions pass away, but they cease to matter and they cease to legitimize hierarchies that are worldly rather than Christian. So, as I said, there were some, there, you know, continue to be distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. And in many ways, they would live differently because of that. They have their own cultures. But in the church, you can't, decide, you can't divide people in that way. With men and women, it's the same thing. See, in Corinth, um, there were a group of women who apparently were so, so thrilled with the new freedom that they had as Christians Because make no mistake about it, Christianity brought a liberation to women that had been unknown in the ancient world. They were so thrilled with that and their freedom to be able to stand up and prophesy. They said, let's throw off all the the bondage. And so they would uncover their heads, which doesn't sound like a big deal to you or me, but it was in that culture to show their hair out in public, that was considered just terribly inappropriate, terribly immodest. And Paul said to them, no, 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 you can't do that. 
You can't do that. You need a covering if you're going to stand and prophesy. Now, you see how they're, they're actually prophesying in church. They are speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit to the church, but they're not to just flout social norms while they're doing that. Do you see? So it's not as if, it's not as if we just throw everything out the window, but Paul uses wisdom in giving counsel for how we work out this equality in Christ in the world in which we live. Because though we're part of the new age, the new age hasn't fully arrived. We also have to live here and now. The thing is, when Paul does that, we don't always know what the context is. So what I just told you about the women who were uncovering themselves when they prophesied. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 11, but scholars have had to do a lot of background digging to try to figure out what the circumstances were in which Paul wrote those words, because otherwise they're hard. it's hard to make sense of them, because it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. You know the kind of misunderstandings that can come when you do that, Right? Well, there are other places where Paul is correcting mistakes or trying to uh, keep people from misunderstanding what freedom in Christ means, and we get one side of the conversation, and hearing that, we're prone, I think, to misunderstand what he's saying. So, the basic principle, there's no male or female in Christ. Because God's original intent is that though there are differences, there really is equality. Differences, of course, but equality. That's God's original plan. And so that's the basic theological point we have to keep in mind. But what about those passages where Paul says things that sound so very different? He gives specific commands. Now, I can't deal with all of them. Just like I don't have time to deal with, with all the passages that would support the idea of equality between men and women, but I, I can't deal with all of them, but I'm going to take the hardest one, okay? There really aren't many. Some people would say there are just two, but I'm taking the hardest one, all right? This is one side of a phone conversation. Paul is talking to Titus, and he says this in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Oh, man. Did he say that? Oh, man. There it is, right? Now, see, here's the thing. A lot of people read that and they say, you know what? That's, that's about as clear as you can get. And so... You need to interpret Galatians 3, talking about this equality. You need to interpret that in light of this clear command. It's very obvious what Paul says. Not only should women remain silent in the church, they shouldn't teach in the church, but this is actually grounded in creation. Adam was created first, not Eve, and Eve was deceived. 
Some people actually interpret Paul to be saying, well, you know what? Eve was deceived and women always are. That's why you don't want women as teachers. I mean, we kind of laugh, but I've heard some famous preachers make that very point. So they take this passage and use it to qualify Galatians. But I would suggest what we have to do is go the opposite direction. Paul has a clear teaching in Galatians, and here we have a command speaking to a situation about which we know only so much. But we do know something. Let me share a few things with you and see if this doesn't change the way the passage sounds. So in Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus was, and and Paul is writing to Titus and dealing with false teaching in Ephesus that had infiltrated the church. In Asia Minor, Artemis was the principal god. Of course, Artemis is female. She's the goddess. Um, She's known to the Romans as Diana of Ephesus, and you recognize that name from the book of Acts. And Ephesus and, and Asia Minor was unusual in this sense that that further west, the principal deity generally was male. But here, in what is present-day Turkey, the principal god was a goddess, and it was Artemis. That's very interesting. Another interesting thing about Asia Minor at this time is there were many, many Jews who had migrated there. And it's known through various sources that some of the Jews had sort of adopted a lot of the ideas that were in the air, and non-Jews came to know something of the Jewish scriptures. And so there is a record not only of the goddess Artemis and her temple that was in Ephesus and the worship that was conducted there, but also alternative legends about Eve. Eve was exalted, and so was the serpent, which is very interesting. That is, The serpent was seen as a sign, a symbol of wisdom in this place and at this time. Now, what we're we're experiencing or what they were experiencing at this time is the beginning of a movement known as Gnosticism, all right? Gnosticism was an ancient heresy that, that suggested that the Old Testament God that you read about in the Bible, the God who created the world, is not the high God, not the true God, but is a lesser power. Those ideas started working within Gnosticism. And there's this mixture of Scripture stories and myths and legends and superstition and magic that's all part of this. By the time you get to the second century, you actually have Gnostic documents that tell us that, that many believe that Eve was created first before Adam. One story even suggests Eve was eternally in heaven. There's an account of Adam laying inert on the ground and Eve breathes life into him. And so she is called the mother of all living, not because she gives birth to children, but because she gave life to Adam. And the story goes that Eve, with the help of the serpent, taught Adam the truth. Adam thought this creator God was the true God, but this this creator God, this God of the Old Testament, this is not the true God. 
And with the help of the serpent, Eve was able to show Adam he was deceived and to lead him into greater enlightenment. Now, you think these are crazy ideas. Well, yeah, they are pretty crazy ideas. And you may think, well, surely people could just look at the Bible and figure out that this has nothing to do with the Bible. How would this infiltrate the church at all? Well, people didn't just carry around Bibles. This wasn't a literate society. Everything is being told by stories It's an oral culture. You can get this kind of mixing together of ideas, incompatible ideas happening. Now, no one knows for sure exactly what constellation of ideas was going on at the time that this letter was written, but we know that the general picture elevates Eve, puts her creation before Adam, that Eve, with the help of the serpent, undeceives Adam, and we also know that in some instances with the the temple of Artemis and some of these other pagan temples, women acted as priests and as mediators of the truth, even authoritative. Later Gnostic writers sometimes saw women as having a peculiar, I was about to say peculiar, I meant it in the King James sense, not in the way we might use the word, (laughs) having a peculiar function as spiritual mediators, okay? This This is the background. Nobody's quite sure on every single detail, but this is the background, ideas that are floating around, all right? So with that in mind, let's read this passage once again, all right? Paul says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Those are the very words that were used for rabbis as they studied the Scripture. They were to learn in silence, it said, with fully submissive hearts. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Now, that goes together. It's talking about a teaching that exerts authority. Often teo is the word for assuming authority. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. And what's interesting is it actually has a negative connotation, that of dominating, of usurping authority. So think about, think about these women priests, these ones who say they have special insight that they need to teach. I do not permit a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man. She must be quiet. For what? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Do you see the connection there? I'm not sure if I made it clear. Did I make it clear? Do you see the connection there? The ideas floating in the background, these are established. We know these ideas are floating in the background. Is Eve is created first. She is superior to Adam She is the one who brings him truth because he was deceived by the false god. And Paul says, no, no, no. There's this false teaching going around. We know from the the other parts of the New Testament, the, the pastoral epistles, we know that women were part of teaching this. That fits the picture that we see. And Paul says, no, I do not allow a woman to usurp authority and try to dominate men and to teach in such a manner. I don't allow that. She needs to learn, like any rabbi would learn, by the way. She's to learn. And he says, listen, (laughs) 
You don't even know. You, 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 this is what the Bible says. Eve created first. No, actually, Adam was created first. Adam was deceived and Eve had to enlighten him. No, actually, Eve was deceived. So Paul is countering this false teaching. He's not taking the passage and teaching it on his own terms. He's trying to counter a misunderstanding. Now, you might say, well, that's what you say, but it, you know, we don't know that this is the exact background. No, we don't. We absolutely don't. But here's the choice that I see. Either Paul is speaking against some sort of background like that, or, or we've got Paul saying, basically, women stay silent because Eve was deceived and you will be too. It's hard to not read this as Paul the sexist unless you try to dig out the background in what's said. Do you see what I'm saying? Are some of you shocked or surprised or a bit disturbed maybe? Listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about something that isn't known. It's all out there. If you do the reading, you'll find it's out there. This is, this is true. Now, as far as you know, being safe through childbirth, I don't even want to get into that because I don't have time. I'm going to leave that aside. But I want you to see, I want you to see that Paul is not simply trying to put women down. He is trying to attack a false teaching that had taken hold. Here's how the New Testament sees it. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Jew and Gentile, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Even your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, doulos, meaning slaves, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. We come to Christ, we're part of the prophetic community. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit as he guides us in our lives. There are certainly differences between men and women, but efforts to try to impose some rigid structure of do's and don'ts, that doesn't even fit the gospel. That doesn't fit the gospel at all, and that's not what Paul's trying to say, and that's not with the whole flow of the Scripture, certainly not as I understand it. So there's this, a young woman, a daughter of the South, named Charlotte, who felt called to missionary work, and she went on the mission field, and it was a huge field with so few workers, and she had this earnest desire to reach people for Christ, and so she she sought permission from her mission board to preach not just to women and children, but also to men, adult men. Her mission board said no, in part because of this passage in 1 Timothy 2, or rather first, uh, in Titus 2. Um, that's part of the reason, was because of that. And so they said, no, you cannot preach to men. She kept arguing her case, and they said no. Finally, she became convinced that God wanted her to reach everyone that she could. And so, 
on her own, on her own judgment before God. That's what she did. She began to preach to anyone who would listen, and she won people to Christ, and she began to plant churches and won more people to Christ. And over the years and decades, she continued to do it, contrary to what her mission board had told her to do. But she believed that the Holy Spirit had gifted her and called her, and she believed that the the teaching of the Scripture was clear, and so she did it. Charlotte became about as close to a saint as the Southern Baptists have. Her name was Charlotte Moon. We know her as Lottie Moon. It's ironic, isn't it? But it's worth considering. It's worth considering. I want you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have called us into your service, that you have have declared us righteous and filled us with your Holy Spirit and gifted us to serve you. And Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to serve you and serve you faithfully. Lord, sometimes it's very difficult as we read the scriptures to be entirely certain about what you may teach uh, on one matter or another, and certainly this is one where, where, Lord, even as Christians, we can disagree, and I know that some of my brothers and sisters here don't entirely agree with what I've shared, but, Lord, we do agree that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and we do all want to serve you fully and completely. And Father, I happen to know that there are women who feel that they are in some ways uh, prevented from doing that. And I pray that you would set them free. And Lord, that we would all before you with humility and grace, with, with understanding for one another, follow the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've been given. Lord, you created us, you created us that we might together, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that we might together serve you. May we serve you now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.